0: If you would do me the honor of taking your Athanasian creed out of your worship folder, I will tell you what we're going to do with this. Um, I'm in favor of the tradition that on Trinity Sunday we confess this together. Although today I will break that tradition, we're not actually going to confess the Athanasian creed together. A couple reasons for that. One is, of the three Christian creeds, the Apostles, and Athanasian, this is by far the longest creed and uh, I have this stinking suspicion that somewhere about halfway through our minds start to wander and, and we miss out on some of the good stuff. I think that was confirmed between the services because somebody came up to me and said, did you know the nickname for the Athanasian Creed is the Euthanasian Creed? <laughs> Apparently it, it does really do damage. So because of the importance of this creed, and it was written at a time when there were two major church problems going on. There were a lot of people questioning the uh, triune God, How could three be one? Uh, And then there were a lot of others who were questioning the dual nature of Christ, being fully human and fully divine. So this creed was developed as a means to teach that, and we continue to teach those truths from Scripture. I put the first page and the last page up here simply as a reminder that I would like you to take these home and carefully read through it. In fact, I would love for you to make this the, the center point of your devotions this week, if you could, and especially if you have children. Uh, take time to talk to them, whether you use the creed or not, about the fact that we were created by one true God and he deserves all of our honor and praise. Uh, fathers, you cannot do your children enough a disservice if you do not encourage them to uh, both embrace that truth and then worship God for all he does for us every single day of our lives. The opening paragraph tells you where it comes from. The closing paragraph I put on here, because... Of some of those closing parts of the statement. It almost sounds like you work your way to heaven, and you do not. You have to put it back in the context of Scripture. So please take time to read through that closing paragraph as well. Um, I wanted this year to be special in that we focus on what it actually says and what we confess, and not halfway through church we fall asleep. Okay, point two. I wanted to do it this way because of the sermon series we start today, Trinity Sunday, and you see the theme is turning points. And basically what this study is going to do is it's almost an extension of our post-Easter Sunday of how God has brought us this gift of new life. And now we have this daily opportunity and challenge uh, to face some very specific turning points in our own lives. And I was trying to think, what's the best way for me to introduce this series to you? And this is what I came up with. Show of hands. How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? Okay, I figured more, I, I didn't realize it was this old. It was made in 99, um, so it's been around for a while. If you haven't seen it, I'm not gonna tell you you should, but while I'm talking, I, I copy and pasted this quick summary, so while I blather on here, you can read that and then you'll get an idea of where we're going with this. I don't know if you're all sci-fi fans or not, but this movie intrigues me, not because of the sci-fi part of it. I'm, I'm not fully aware if the producers actually intended to make this movie as as spiritual as it seems to be. Um, And there's two points of of comparison I'd like to make. The Matrix in this movie, it's some computer program, but basically it fools mankind into thinking something uh, that isn't reality. Basically it's fooling everybody to believe something about themselves that is absolutely false. It's this amazing correlation for what sin does in our lives. Sin constantly tries to fool us to believing we're something we are not. The other connecting point would be uh, this man, Neo, the character played by Keanu Reeves. And there's only some comparative points because some don't measure up. But typically, the way the hero of this movie is portrayed is the only way for him to save mankind is he has to die and then come back to life. That should sound familiar to us. That's where the connection ends. Because unlike our savior, the hero of this movie, he also is part of the matrix. And we know Christ was perfect. So I don't think they went so far as to make it an equal. But Neil has to be himself convinced that everything he's been living is is a lie and that if he's going to be the rescuer that the movie makes him out to be, he has to embrace the truth. Now, you know, I don't typically go to movies to make any sermon points, but there is a scene in this movie, a turning point scene. It's cinematic history where basically Neo faces that moment. Should I follow the truth? Should I pursue it? Or should I continue to live in this lie of the matrix? And I wanted to use this as an illustration of what our study this year will be.
1: Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room, Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. (sighs) Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. is the truth, nothing more.
0: Follow me. That's kind of where we find ourselves at the beginning of this new study. I don't know how many times a day or how many times a week we find ourselves at this pivotal moment in our existence and in our relationship with God. On the one hand, we can follow the God's truth and do what he created and designed us to do. On the other hand, we have the choice whether or not we're going to follow our own sinful human nature and the will of the devil and do the things that what seem like or deceive us to believe is a better way. It's a turning point in our day and in our lives. And much like Morpheus said to Neo in the movie, all I can do is show you the truth. It'll be up to the Holy Spirit and you, whether or not you take the red pill or the blue pill. The truth of which I'm speaking are contained in the 25 lessons of this series. And so you know, these aren't the only 25 turning point lessons in all of Scripture. There's hundreds, thousands of them where quite literally a child of God is facing a monumental decision in his life. And that decision will determine what comes after. And there's a wide range of these. Uh, Next week's lesson is uh, on Abraham. Uh, He's dealing with a, a famine in his land. He's going down to Egypt. His wife Sarah is a beautiful woman, and so he lies about his relationship with her. Why did he make that decision? Why did he make the wrong choice? About halfway through, we're going to take a look at a man like Joshua, who amongst all of the Bible characters, I find so few flaws recorded about this man. I mean, even King David had some big ones, but Joshua seems to be a man who's in pretty good harmony with God, except on this occasion. God had told him, don't enter into any treaties or alliances with the people who once owned this land and unfortunately Joshua makes the foolish choice to do that with the Gibeonites. Now there's a whole scenario why, but how was he so easily fooled? All the way down to the last one, the criminal, the robber on the cross next to Jesus and that's why there's two lessons there. They both started mocking Jesus at the beginning and somewhere along the line the pivotal moment for this man came when the Holy Spirit blessed him with the gift of faith. But then he had a choice to make. What was he going to do with that faith? He was moments, hours away from death. Could he fight it? Or could he turn to his Lord and trust him even through that last breath the way that we have been convinced to do? All of these lessons are going to help us, if you will, to deal with the turning points in our life. The hope for outcome of this is to equip us to identify those moments and then also to figure out how we can trust God as we make the choice to follow the truth. This is where we start. It's with Genesis 4. It's from a section that's familiar to most of us. I I know of even non-church people that know about Cain killing his brother Abel. Well, this lesson isn't about the murder itself. It's about the moments that lead up to it. And when Cain himself faces this turning point and God tells him how he should deal with it, Unfortunately, you know how this ends, and he didn't do it. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. All right, now we're going to jump into this lesson. And you know me, I like to always make sure we understand the setting and context. And unfortunately, in the earlier sections of Genesis, there's not a whole lot of context to work with. But some of it we do have, and it's provided not only in the lesson itself, but then also in our Old Testament lesson. Um, what it's translated as in the course of time, but literally the Holy Spirit says, based on what you just heard about the birth of Cain and Abel, there was a number of days, weeks, and then years that had passed by, and now we're dealing with these two gentlemen in a, in adulthood. The uh, Old Testament lesson told us their occupi- occupations. They were both farmers. One worked with the soil, one worked with the animals. And then this lesson, uh, part of the lesson itself, shows us that Adam and Eve took seriously their responsibility as parents, because they taught their children about the true God, and they taught their children how to worship the true God. Now, there's certain things about this that I think we have to be very careful with, and maybe the best way to do that is to remind ourselves how the Old Testament works. It's been a while since we've had an Old Testament lesson, so let's just stop for a moment and refresh our memories how Hebrew narrative works. Uh, Simply put, Hebrew narrative is God giving us information without offering a lot of commentary on the hows, or the wise, and and we're finding that to be true here. Uh, God produces a lot of information. I think sometimes we make certain assumptions, but we have to be very careful to understand how this was written. Let me give you a a couple examples. Uh, We're told that Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve, and and almost without exception, I know I've done this, I've made the assumption these were the first two children they had. Uh, I'm not suggesting they weren't, don't get me wrong, but the Bible never actually says that. And the only reason I bring that up is because we're dealing with a Hebrew narrative, we're being given information. Because as we go on in scripture, we find out that they had more children. Uh, we're told about Seth being born. So you understand, what it doesn't provide is the birth date. Uh, it doesn't tell us how far apart these sons were born. Uh, it's not attempting to give us a chronological timeline. All it's doing is it's offering to us an order. And that becomes important as we work through this lesson and many of these Old Testament lessons to remind ourselves, how does the Hebrew narrative work? It's teaching us something without over-teaching us. Uh, there's something else here, too. Uh, again, especially if you go into chapter 5, we hear about other sons and daughters. We're never told when they're born. We're never given any of their names. Um, and so there's a, a certain aspect about this and maybe the best way is to take us back to the beginning. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are written with this narrative feature. In Genesis 1, you have an account of creation. Genesis 2, you have an account of creation. And unfortunately, a lot of people look at them and they go, well, there's two accounts of the creation. And Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the same account. It's just one is layered over the top of the other to offer a wider perspective. There's so much information when it comes to the creation of this world and life. God says, I, I need to let you take a look at it from different perspectives. But he doesn't fill in all the blanks. He doesn't offer us all the information that we would like. He simply tells us what we need to know without a lot of extra detail or commentary. The same is true about the children of Adam and Eve. Uh, We're not told all of those details. All we're told is to begin with, we know for sure there were these two boys, and that's where the conflict begins. By the way, when you understand how the Hebrew narrative works, it does provide information, uh, information I think a lot of times that we seek, but we need to look carefully to see what it says. For instance, this answers the age old question, where did Cain find his wife? Where did Seth find his wife? They married their sisters. And I know that's abhorrent to us, to marry one's sister. But the reality is, is that at the beginning, that wasn't wrong, that wasn't a sin. It wasn't until Sinai that God uh, gave the prohibition, don't marry a close relative. That's when it became wrong. So all these people trying to figure out, were there two races, all this uh, goofy stuff? No, it was Cain marrying his sister (coughs) And they started a family. It's as simple as that. And again, we don't have commentary from God going, well, here's good. Later on, it's bad. Now, the reason why I I wanted to spend a little bit of time just getting our heads around the context is because once we actually get into the lesson itself, we really need to keep our wits about us to make sure we understand what God is telling us. And if this is going to be the jump-off lesson for this sermon series, we better understand how this works let me give you an example. We always wonder now, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? That's a pretty serious sin. And we jump to this line, Cain was very angry, and so we make certain assumptions. Cain was angry. And in fact, when you take a look at the word that God uses for this, this is the kind of anger that comes from jealousy. So we make the assumption, well, Cain was jealous of his brother Abel, so he has to off him. That's the only conclusion that Cain could come to. The problem with that theory is, is that when you look at this word in the l- original language, it's a very neutral term. It's neither good nor bad. In fact, it's used in Scripture a lot of times in a very good way. Let me give you an example. It's kind of word that describes the anger that comes from a wife's jealousy when her husband has wandering eyes and wants to show affection towards another woman. See, almost always we think of jealousy in a bad way, but there's a good use for the term jealousy. It would be the wife's use of jealousy. Once they're married, that man owes his wife his complete and entire heart. And if he were to have affections towards any other woman, she is rightfully jealous and angry with him because not only has he violated their covenant of marriage, but he's also living outside the parameters of what God has created for that relationship to be. She deserves his whole heart. And if he gives it to somebody else, she has the right to be angry. I think most of us have used the term to describe that as righteous wrath or righteous anger. Now, I wanted you to understand that the term is neutral because now when we come to Cain, it's being used in a very specific way. This wasn't a good kind of jealousy or anger when it comes to Cain. But we dare not assume that Abel was basically the target of that jealousy or the cause of that anger if we start to dig in and really look at the lesson, we come to realize that the problem was not Cain's relationship with his brother Abel. It was Cain's relationship with God. It's interesting, and I'm not sure we always think of it in these terms, and I don't know if I want to use the word faith, but Cain believed in God. His parents taught him that there's one true God. And the lesson tells us that Cain worshipped this God. I, I think we would call it faith, but in the Old Testament, early on, they don't they don't use it the way we do. He knew who God was, and he trusted God was his provider. This term offering, it's used both for Cain and for Abel, meaning that they both worshipped the true God. But there was a difference in the offering. But you should understand, first and foremost, what this offering was. Cain worked hard for a living. He grew crops, and he took a part of his crops, part of his income, and he brought it back to God as a way to say thank you. There's a a very important aspect to this offering. It was a free will offering. At least that's the terminology we would use today. It was voluntary. There were no laws that said you have to bring this amount of money back and give it to God. Both of these boys did it all on their own, having been guided and taught by their parents. By the way, as an aside, not to get too far off track, but have you ever noticed that a budding Shepherd that you have never seen a basket set out with a little sign, free will offering. Have you all noticed that? Have you ever wondered why? Maybe I'm just barking up the wrong tree here. I'll get to that in just a minute. But I wanted you to note that because it has to do with this lesson that we're about to dig into in more detail. And it has to do with this offering that was brought to God, both by Cain as well as Abel. You see, what happens is, and if we jump ahead to the New Testament, we kind of back into this. Sometimes an offering is brought to the Lord for all of the right reasons, and it's referred to as a superior offering. It's what God wants from us. So you understand, God has put everything into our relationship. Uh, Basically, he did everything necessary so that we could have a relationship, and what God says is, what I want back from you is the same. I want you to put everything into this relationship. And when you do, that is a superior offering, which means there's a flip side to this. If you don't put everything into that relationship, if you shortchange your relationship with God, which Cain was apparently doing, then you bring forward a inferior offering. You see, that's one of the reasons why you never see the free will basket out in a little sign, because I'm convinced that what happens is that's what motivates us to give. Tell me if this has never happened to you. You walk up to you know, some church table, or you're at some church event, and you wanna go get a cup of coffee. That's all you want. You get up there, and all of a sudden, there's a basket there with a free will offering, and you go, oh, I better pay a buck for my coffee. Would you have done that if that sign wasn't there? If that basket wasn't there? So all I'm asking is, what was your motivation for your offering? It wasn't the coffee, it wasn't the sign, Was it because you truly wanted to show thanks and praise to God for everything he's done for you? The point that this lesson teaches us is that in this relationship, our worship of God needs to come from a heart that is consumed by the love of God. Anything less than that, any human motivation to coax money out of us is an inferior offering. And God basically says, I don't want it. Here's the ironic thing. Throughout Scripture, we're taught this very principle, and yet we, we so fight against it, and it's, it's to our own detriment. And Don't confuse money in an envelope given to the church as necessarily giving your entire heart to God. We'll get into that soon enough. The reality is, is in whatever way, shape, or form, we bring our offerings, but basically God says, is, I want it to reflect what is in your heart, how you see this relationship and that's the very answer that jesus gave to that young religious expert he wasn't saying keep the law perfectly and you get to go to heaven because the lord knows that's impossible and the lord knew that was impossible what he was saying is if that's really how you can have a relationship with god that your heart is all in on that relationship you will be rescued from this broken and miserable life. Of course, he's here in order to make sure that that happens. He's here to make sure that everything we're about to talk about can take place. Okay, the irony is is that this was about his relationship with God. You see, Cain knew there was a problem. He knew that he was only kind of putting a little bit of energy into this relationship. He certainly wasn't giving it his whole heart, this downcast face, this depression is a result of keen understanding, something very simple, something I'm not sure that we have fully understood and embraced either. And it has to do with this word Sha'a. You know this word. Because at least half the time our services end with what's called the ironic blessing. And in one of those phrases, and may the Lord bless you and keep you, may the Lord turn his face toward you and shine upon you. That's this word. And you get how it works. If you face somebody, that's a sign of approval. If I turn my back on you, that's a sign of disapproval. Well, Cain's figuring this out. God is not favorable. He's turned his back on my offering. And the real problem is is the literal meaning of this offering is compassion. Cain, just put two and two together. The way in which I have failed to invest in my relationship with God is going to have repercussions on my daily life. And, and don't misunderstand. Cain under, understood what it's like to live in a broken world and how tough and challenging it is. Just because he lived so long ago, don't think his life was any easier than ours is. Maybe in many ways it was harder. And he knew that if God withdrew his compassion from him, he was in dire straits. In fact, if you want to look at this principle, in the rest of Scripture, I found this to be maybe the best way to do it. Quite literally what happens is, is God puts us control of his blessings for our lives. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not. I know I didn't really hear that much growing up, but it's one of these aspects of rule or be ruled. You literally, God says, are in control whether or not you're going to be blessed in your life. This example comes from the nation of Israel right after the golden calf incident. God is ticked. He's ready to destroy these people. And he tells Moses, uh, they're done. And then he turns to Moses and says, I'll make a nation out of you. And, of course, Moses is a great leader. He intercedes. You can't do that. A, the promise was through Judah, not Levi. And B, what are the people of the world going to say if you brought your nation out here only to destroy them? So Moses' intercession works. God forgives them. Um, but then God says, okay, I'm, I'm done with you stiff-necked, snot-nosed, naughty kids. Here's the new plan. He says, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Now I need to say this very carefully and you need to listen carefully. This aspect is not a motivation for why we worship. This aspect is a result of our worship. You see, Cain understood that there was nothing he could do to coax God's blessings for him because after all, we're sinners and God is God, he's holy. But God has also made a way for us to be provided by him in a very generous and loving way that if we are in harmony with God, if we... Listen to God. If we follow God's truth, it opens up this entire door of blessings that God deeply desires to want to give to us. That's the very same situation that Israel was in and Cain now finds himself in. God comes to Cain and he says, whatever happens next is on you. I should put it a little more positively. You have control of what now follows. And when we remember how loving God is, and how much he wants to bless us this is a tremendous statement that he makes we get this principle if you have children or if you're a teacher you know how this works if you have an obedient child you favor them you bless them if you have a disobedient child you don't show favor to them you withhold blessings both of these come from a motive of love because you want that child to be blessed because you want that child to grow Think of how harmful it would be if you had an obedient child and all you offered to them was negative feedback. The opposite is also true. Imagine if with a disobedient child, what you used was a positive reinforcement. All they would continue to do would be to rebel against you. It's the same thing that God is doing with Cain. Cain, by your actions. Quite honestly, because of what's in your heart or what's not in your heart, You are compelling me to love you so much, I need to withhold these blessings from you. And so we're clear, this is not a punishment. The punishment for our sins was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. Not only does God the Father say it, but the Son declares it from the cross, and the Holy Spirit convinces us this is true. However, we still live in a broken world, and we still have a broken nature, so there are consequences to sin. If I decide to drive 100 miles an hour, a consequence probably is going to be I'm going to get a ticket. It doesn't mean God doesn't love me. It doesn't mean God's punishing me. In fact, He's probably using that ticket to slow me down and save my life. So we understand, consequences of sin are different than punishment for sin. All right, now I've prattled on about this in great detail, because we've reached one of these points in today's lesson. And I fear that in a few moments you're going to wish you took the blue pill and were back in your bed sleeping and not having to go down this rabbit hole. Because we're going to talk about some pretty personal things here, some pretty big things, things that oftentimes we're not comfortable talking about or hearing about, but I think for the sake of our series, so that we truly do receive the Lord's blessings, it's only fair that we do talk about them. The first is the fact that I don't know that as Christians, we've always considered that there's actually two reasons why we struggle in this life. The first one's obvious. This world's broken. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they destroyed this amazing, beautiful creation, and we suffer the consequences of that for all of our lives. The punishment for that Christ paid for, but we still live with the consequences. Because the world's not perfect, then that means we're gonna have to deal with sickness and problems, and other people also being sinners. It's the other reason I think that we Christians have been very uncomfortable really addressing and talking about is sometimes we have challenges and struggles in this life because God is withholding his blessings. And much like the principle that I just shared with you, it's out of love that he does that. If we find ourselves on a wrong track, if we find that we're losing interest in our relationship with God, the worst thing he could do would be to shower us with blessings. Because you know how the human mind works. Well, God must be okay with this. God must be okay with my choices, when in fact he's not. And so it's a very loving action, and it breaks God's heart to have to do it, kind of like the parent that says it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. God has to withhold those blessings until we figure out there's something wrong with my relationship, and I need to work on that. All right, here's the part where all of a sudden you're going to assume because of the lesson and because we're in church now, we're going to talk about money. If you know me at all, I never talk about money. I talk about stewardship. And so you understand, I use the term stewardship in a much different way than I think most people do. Stewardship is nothing other than a fancy theological term to talk about our relationship with God. And since we're dealing with the human heart, because that's where our relationship with God exists, It's next to impossible for us to actually measure where each other is at in our relationship with God. Nor is that our business. So what you're about to hear is for you alone, okay? It applies to you as it applies to me. There are a few ways for me to actually, as a human being, measure my relationship with God. But one of those ways which God has done that is through my worship. And part of worship is my offering. Part of worship is my coming here. Part of worship is my attendance at the Lord's Supper because I'm hungry and thirsty for that body and blood which assures me all my sins are paid for. And if those things get off track, if I don't lovingly give offerings to God or if I give offerings for the wrong reasons or if I don't really want to spend time with you and I don't want to spend time with God, If I'm not hungry and thirsty for Christ's body and blood, it should tell me something about my relationship with God. That is why I don't want us ever to put out a free will offering basket. Because if you ever put even so much as a dollar in there for the wrong reasons, or because somehow you were made to feel guilty to, you know, pay for your coffee, you're better off keeping that offering. It'll end up doing more harm than good. Not sure you ever heard that out of a pastor's mouth or in church. Keep your money. If you're giving it for the wrong reasons, it won't be a blessing. Now you probably think, okay, he's using reverse psychology on us, right? Because church budget, we're kind of behind, so we all better pitch in, right? Wrong. Well, I pray to God that you would be encouraged to support the work of your church, your church. And to do so generously. Abiding shepherd isn't the only ministry in this world that exists to share the gospel and reach people's lives with the same life-saving words that have saved us. These are just a short list of other gospel ministries that do amazing work. It's not what you're giving to. It's why you're giving it. And the question that we all have to ask as we assess, as we hold ourselves accountable and wonder, where am I at in my relationship with God? is: Am I like Cain? Or am I like Abel?
2: two men bring an offering to the Lord one of the fruit of the ground the other the firstborn of his flock God accepts one and rejects the other why? now Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground and in the process of time It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The word tells us clearly that the offering Abel brought was the firstborn of his flock. But it doesn't say that Cain brought the first fruits of his crops. It simply says, in the process of time, Cain brought an offering. Cain harvested his crops and over time gathered enough to bring an offering. It was an offering on Cain's terms. God accepted Abel's offering because it was the first of his increase. Cain's offering was rejected because it wasn't the first of his. Giving the first to God requires faith. When a firstborn lamb is born in a flock, it's not possible to know how many more lambs that you might produce. But Abel gave his firstborn lamb in faith, whereas Cain made sure he had enough for himself before giving to God. Many of us treat God the same way as Cain, making sure we have enough money before we see if there's anything left for God. Even if we give from what's left over, God can't accept the offering because it's not the first fruit. Other stories emphasize this truth. In the account of the fall of Jericho, the Lord gave strict instructions that the Israelites were not to keep any of the spoils from Jericho. All of it belonged to him, the Lord declared. Jericho belonged to the Lord because it was the first city conquered in the Promised Land. It was the first fruits. God withheld his blessing from Israel when one man took some of the spoils for himself. The first belongs to God. There was much more at stake than money when Abraham offered his firstborn son Isaac. When God asked for his son, Abraham didn't wait to have 10 sons before giving Isaac. He gave the first when he only had one to give. Abraham had only the promise of having more sons. It took faith for Abraham to offer Isaac, faith that God respected and blessed. And God did the same for us. He gave his first in the form of his son, his first and only begotten son, who was given to us while we were still sinners. God gave Jesus in faith that we might one day give our lives to him. The gift of his son Came before the blessing of our repentance and salvation. We give our first fruits in much the same way. Before we see the blessing of God, we give it in faith. Giving the first fruits of your income says to God, I recognize you first, I am putting you first in my life, and I trust you to take care of the rest.
0: Now that we know what Cain's problem was, now that we know the challenges that we face, the question is, what are we gonna do about it? It has to begin from the heart. God has put everything into his relationship with us. He wants us to do the same, to put everything in our relationship with him. And because that sounds like the worst kind of way to motivate a person, let me me reword that. God is so completely and totally in love with you that he wants you to experience the same feeling he has towards him that he feels towards you. He wants you to feel completely and totally in love with him. And there's a way to do that. Now, it won't be perfect this side of heaven, but there is a better path for us to enjoy the love of that relationship. And God shares that answer with Cain. And it, we find it you have control, rule or be ruled. He's going to Cain, the one who's struggling, and says, Cain, you you can do this. God knows his creation. He's made man to be this amazing creation, the best of his creation, and God knows I've empowered you, Cain, and because of our relationship, you can do this. Now watch how God does that. He talks about the fact that if you do what is right, will you not be Accept it. And as I was working through this, it dawned on me how true this is, and yet how much we fight against this basic truth. I've spent so much of my life, so much time and energy, trying to control the things that God says are not my control. It's frustrating. And and I can give you all the reasons. I'm type A. uh, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm German. The list goes on and on and on. But it's taking me most of my lifetime to figure out, these things are beyond me. These are God things. So what God says instead is, why don't you focus on the things, put your time and energy in the things that you, you can control. And most of that involve my world, the things that I do. But there's one part of that God says that he gives control to us, and that's his blessings. Now, we've hinted that already as we've identified the problem, but there, there's more to this. This verb for you do is in what's known as the hyphial verb stem, and that doesn't mean anything to you other than the fact that in the next few seconds, Pastor Cruz is going to give you a Hebrew lesson, but it's vitally important. The Hebrew uses this verb stem when it wants to identify who's in control. Who is the doer of an action? Who is responsible for the outcome? God says this to Cain, not to Abel the good one. He says this to Cain, the one who struggles. He says, what you choose to do next will determine the outcome, whether I bless you or whether I don't bless you. In fact, he says it also on the other side of things. You have control over temptation. You, Cain, can decide whether you kill your brother or whether you enjoy a good long life with him as your brother. And you know what? We've been even more blessed than Cain because we live on this side of the resurrection. We live on this side of Pentecost Sunday and the powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For Cain, those were only dreams from some far off distant future. For us, they are our past. It is what God has done to not only assure us of our salvation, but empower us to enjoy aspects of it already right now. I think the reason why we've missed this has to do with this entire lesson and the way it kind of sets our minds about scripture and what it teaches. Because after all, we're sinners. I, I know a lot of my background. You know, sin is a bad thing, it's powerful. It can control you. And, and we start to think like, maybe there's not much I can do about it. We play this victim card. Sin is what it is. I'm a sinner. I'm going to sin. And, and eventually, we just let it be. I, I, I think one of the missing words in our Lutheran heritage is accountability. God says, "I've, I've given you so many gifts." You're accountable for the use of those. And here's one lesson that tells us I can even have some accountability when it comes to whether my life is blessed or not. Now, don't beat yourself up too much. This is part of our nature too. Remember the first sin? Eve points to the, I'm sorry, Adam points to Eve, Eve points to the serpent. Basically, it all goes back on God. Nobody likes to take accountability, but the reality is, is we must be honest with ourselves if we really want to conquer these moments, these turning points. And it has to do with this. This is the answer. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but almost all of us, I know I was. I was taught this sin is crouching at the door. I I was taught it was like a lion waiting outside the door of your heart. Does that sound familiar to most of y'all? It's just not quite right. Because after all, who can beat a lion? A lion that's prowling for you. Uh, Scripture does describe the devil as a lion. uh, That's how he hunts us. He sneaks through the weeds. He watches when we're weak. And who can take on a lion? But it refers to temptation differently. Temptation is more obvious. Temptation is, is lazier than a lion. And let me tell you what this word really says. It can mean crouching, but it means on all fours, legs folded. Not crouching ready to attack but like lying on the ground, sleeping. I think in my own mind this works better instead of a lion, because lions are big and mean and scary, a better picture would be like a sleeping dog. And if you've ever owned a dog, you know what I'm talking about when we get to this part. My family's owned two of them. And for the life of me, I have no reason why, but it was within the instinct of a dog to always lay in the high traffic areas of the house. If you have a dog, you know that to be true. I can't tell you how many times I have almost tripped and fallen flat on my face in my own house, Because the dog decided that one path that you need to go through is the best place to take a nap. That's how temptation works. Remember, it's not the devil. It's the temptation of the devil. And when God says to Cain, you can rule over this, he's basically saying, you don't have to fight a lion that's ready to attack. You got to tell the sleeping dog to get up and get out of your way. That's something we can do. If you ever had a dog almost break your neck because you tripped over it, the very next words out of your mouth are, get out of here! We have to do that with sin as well. That's what God is saying to Cain is the secret to you ruling rather than being ruled by temptation. Truth of the matter is what God is teaching to Cain is the basis of the relationship. God is all in for us. He simply invites and makes it possible for us to be all in for God. And if we choose not to swallow that pill of truth, then you know the alternative. It's to continue to live a lie. This is the first of the lessons that God is providing in Holy Scripture to teach us about these critical moments in time where we're at a turning point. Either we do it God's way or or we do it our way. the the world's way. And the truth of the matter is to be blessed, to truly enjoy the fruits of this relationship with God, it simply comes down to being ruled, or you choose to rule.
3: My mindset was different from the second I compared the so-called bad things in my life to the good things in my life, realizing what I had taken for granted. We all have that turning point. We just need to recognize it for ourselves. You have to recognize, embrace, and be thankful for the good moments in your life. No matter how rough life gets, just step back, take a breath, and look around you. See the gifts that you've been given, even if it's a loaf of bread in the fridge where you won't go hungry. Isn't that a blessing? Stop making excuses. Placing blame is a cop-out. Take the blame, don't place it. It's up to you to believe that you can do more, and guess what? You can, at this very moment. You have it in, you to do great things. You have the power to touch so many lives, but you have to touch yours first. Every day you wake up, you're setting an example for anyone around you, for your kids to see, your family to see, your co-workers, anyone that crosses your path. You are setting the bar. I urge you to raise up. Stop noticing the negative and start promoting the positive. Train your mind to do more, believe in more. It's simply breathtaking to see the power of optimism if you truly take a step back and be thankful for everything in your life. You have to live as if there's no tomorrow. Love so strong that the ones that love you will never feel anything greater from anyone they ever touch in their lives. Work hard knowing nothing comes easy. Show the world what you're made of. Teach the world to see the good in their lives and realize that the trying times aren't going to go away. These are tests. These are roads that we have to cross in order to get to the destination we're looking toward getting to. You have greatness in you. It's time to take responsibility and show the world what you're made of.